Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Massive, massive podcast day. Massive podcast day. Later on in the show, you're not going to want to miss it. Darren Ravel did an amazing interview with uh, Tobias Harris of the Philadelphia 76ers, who just signed a $180 million max contract with the 76ers. Last year at this time, Tobias Harris was offered a contract for half that money, $90 million. Still a lot of money? Turned it down. Bet on himself. In our continuing Bet on Yourself series, Ravel is going to talk to Tobias Harris and his agent, who also happens to be his father, about what it took to turn down $90 million and turn that into 2x the money, including a hilarious quote about the business of being a father-son, agent-player duo, and the, man- the management of that money from Tobias Harris. It's not one you're going to want to miss. Stick around for that. But first up, it's British Open Week. They're playing in Northern Ireland at Port Rush. Weather will be a factor. Tiger Woods has been off for a month. Can Brooks Kepka be the major master? What is going to happen? Jason Sobel knows all the answers because he is our golf genius at the Action Network. What's going on, buddy? What's up, Chad? One of my favorite weeks of the year. I can't wait for this thing to get started. How early are you setting the alarm for this week? So, listen, I'm up so early anyways because, you know, my kids historically have gotten up so early that even though now they sleep till, you know, the next day, I still get up at 5.30 in the morning. That's going to be too late. You're like midway through the early wave rounds already. I, I think I want you up at about 3.30, 3.45 this week. I can do that. I can do that, no problem. All right. Everybody should listen okay. to you. Uh, everyone should go download, subscribe, rate, and review the Action Network podcast. Not that I want to drive people away from ours, but I do want them to listen to what you, Andrew Stoltz, a.k.a. Sleaze, and Peter Jennings doing the podcast. You guys are killing it. And this podcast is doing gangbusters right now. So everyone should go listen to the Action Network podcast where you can get Sobel. You can also get like Stucky and Colin Wilson on college football. You can get Sean Corner and uh, Chris Raybon and Matthew Friedman on fantasy in the NFL. Uh, it's fantastic. Go get it. Um, boy, oh boy, we are loaded for bear. Why do you like this week so much, Sobel? What's so special about the British Open? Man, how long do we have? Uh, it's just a different kind of golf than we see, at least from the PGA Tour sense of things any other week of the year. I mean, if you're watching European Tour golf, you wake up early on the weekends, uh, okay, the Irish Open two weeks ago and the Scottish Open, but for, for the majority of the golf fans in the U.S. who are paying attention to 95% PGA Tour golf, we see these lush parkland courses with uh, big greens, and uh, and they're, they're very green and, uh, and built here we go over. It's Lynx golf. It's a different type of golf. It just it feels different. It looks different. It plays differently. Uh, I, like I said, I, I love it. And I love the fact that, you know, I always get to ask this question, what, what major is the best? What, what's the real way that a major should play? Should it be 20 under, like, a, like an open championship where the wind's not blowing? Should it be even par, like a U.S. Open? I said, I love it because they're all different. And if they were all the same, if we had four major championships that were all the same, it wouldn't be as much fun. I love the fact that the Open Championship this week is so completely different from anything we've seen at the Masters or the PGA or the U.S. Open so far this year. 
All right, so right now on the Action Network, download the app, it's free. You have multiple stories up, and we're going to get through all of them because they all relate to betting, finding your advantage when betting the U.S. Open or the British Open. The first thing you did, which is which is an epic undertaking, you've done it for all all three other majors, ranking all 156 players in the field. And in, in your introduction, you write that it is getting harder and harder to do this. Explain why. I feel like, Chad, 10 years ago, and I've been doing this for a long time. I did some other outlets before. Because you're Coming old. the Action Network. Uh, I'm very old right now. I'm, I'm older than Tiger Woods. That's how old I am. Jeez, and I'm man. I'm probably in poor shape right now. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty old. I play more golf than he does, though, which is good. Uh, <laughs> so it's been a long time that I've been doing these lists. At Ten years ago, you could take the best players in the game. I mean, what was it at that point? It was Tiger, Phil, VJ, Ratif Goosen, Adam Scott at the time. So, and you could basically take of the top ten in the world, take eight of them, throw them on your list, put a couple guys below them, and say, all right, I'm going to do pretty well. Uh, you know, there's, uh, okay, you know, there's, Maybe some guys who play a little bit better at some events, and there's going to be some sleepers. But for the most part, it was easier back then. I feel like it's so tough now because I can get down, I can get to the 45th guy on my list and look at it and say, you know, I really like that guy this week, and then look at the top 44 that are all above him and say, I just don't like him better than those 44 guys. So. I guess he's kind of stuck in 45th place, but it doesn't mean I hate the guy. And the fact that the fields are so deep, there's so many good players, you want to have some sleepers up there. I want to uh, not just list the, the world ranking and just, you know, recite, hey, well, this guy's number one in the world. I'll put him number one on my list. I, I, I want to have, you know, some sort of opinion in there. And, and so you start doing this, and it's really, really hard. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just giving an explanation preemptively to – uh, at least thwart some of the criticism that I always get after every major championship. So I haven't gotten one of these right yet. I, I don't know how. I'm waiting for the day. I'll retire the day I get all 156 right in order. Oh, well, that would be remarkable. But do you think that um, that this is the legacy of Tiger Woods, more than sort of bringing diversity to the game, but it's bringing in superior athletes? It's part of it. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot, man. The, his legacy is sort of like 12-pronged. Uh, I think that uh, you can't overstate the cultural impact and global impact that Tiger has had on the game. And, uh, and not just bringing more people to the game, but the people that were in the game, having them, giving them more of an interest and more of a reason to watch and a reason to root. Um, he's polarizing uh, so many golfers, and this is sort of a complaint of mine. I don't know how you fix it, but so many golfers, you look at them and say, yeah, that guy's cool. I hope he plays well. And, yeah, okay, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for him a little bit. But there are very few golfers that the casual fans go, man, I love that guy. That's my guy. i got to go out and root for him. Tiger Woods has brought that to the sport over the last 20 years, and that's what makes him uh, such an icon not only in golf, but in, in all of sports. And, and so uh, that's part of it. Yes, he has gotten these players to not look like overweight middle-aged guys in white shirts and khakis who are uh, look like they were plucked from their local country club and have to play a little bit better than all the other guys and play on the PGA Tour and make a lot of money. These are uh, 
these are athletes. You, you look at Brooks Kepka, and if you didn't know he was a golfer, I would say he played third base in the major league somewhere. I mean, he looks like you know that kind of guy. He looks like a Nolan Arenado kind of guy that uh, could go hit 45 home runs a year for your team if he wasn't playing golf. You look at Dustin Johnson, he should be playing small forward somewhere, uh, you know, hitting about four threes a game and, and averaging about six rebounds. Uh, uh, these guys look like athletes from other sports, and yes, Tigers had a, a massive impact on that. And I think moving forward, uh, when we talk about the future of the game 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be like Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson are the norm, and then there are going to be guys who are legitimately would have been a linebacker in the NFL except had a couple of concussions or didn't want to go through the physical uh, drama of being a, a football player and took up golf instead, and the guys are hitting 380 yards off the tee every time. And uh, that's the, the direction the game is moving. And yes, a lot of that can be traced to Tiger. Do you think uh, – I agree, by the way, and you – I was thinking about when you were before you started talking about like, you know, middle aged overweight dudes, I was thinking nowadays you gotta think about what Justin Thomas looks like and compare it to Colin Montgomery. In a sense, yeah. I, I mean there are very few Colin Montgomery types anymore. I mean, even if you're hey, okay, I'm not Brooks Kepka, I at least have to be Justin Thomas. I at least have to be Jordan Speed. I I have to be uh, average to what the rest of the professional golfers are and above average sort of physicality uh, for the average guy out there, if that makes sense. You know, uh, you, you look at Jordan Spieth on TV and you say, well, okay, you know, he's like 25, he's got sort of a dad bod. You know, he doesn't look like he's in great shape. You stand next to Jordan Spieth and you're like, well, he's in a lot better shape than I am. He's a lot better shape than most other average guys walking around playing golf at their club. So, I mean, these guys are in shape. Even the guys who aren't, like, ripped and look like they should be playing another sport, they're still in really good physical shape. I also wonder, and this brings it back a little bit to gambling, which is it feels like there's been some kind of generational shift with golf in that it transitioned from being a country club sport that was played by people who were sort of above the fray, and if they were gambling on the match or they were gambling with each other, it was all sort of, it felt like, you know, Ted Knight, the judge from Caddyshack, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. now it feels like it's a little bit like bro-ish. Remember what I said about those 12 prongs of Tiger's uh, impact on the game? That, that's another one right there. I mean, Tiger, when he was growing up, they called him Urkel. You know, he's a nerd because he played golf and he didn't play other sports. And yet, Tiger's the one that sort of made it cool. And now, guy, you know, I, I see kids at my club all the time. It, my place is littered with more 12 and 13 year olds than there are 55 year olds. Uh, I'm serious. On a daily basis, there are more young kids there playing golf and working on their games than there are old retired guys or guys who work part time and want to still play golf all the time. Um, and, and that is maybe not a direct impact of Tiger, but uh, yeah, and, and, and what we've seen on the PGA Tour level is that these kids basically ref become amateur professionals at a very early age. Chad, I don't know if you were watching the 3M Open. I was actually out there a couple of weeks ago in Minnesota for the weekend. Matthew Wolf, a month out of college, turned professional and won the 3M Open with an eagle uh, off the green on the final hole to win by one. 
And the guy in second place was Colin Morikawa, who's 22 years old. Wolf is 20. And these guys come out ready to win now. And it's because from a very young age, they are learning how to be sort of professional golfers. Uh, I don't know that that was happening a generation ago. A generation ago, even if you were a 10-year-old kid who liked to play golf, you go down to the club and you work on your game and you play. Now it's, hey, I'm 10 years old, so I'm uh, traveling from state to state to state playing in tournaments and basically being a professional golfer without getting paid for it. And now what's happening is these kids are graduating to the highest level, playing on the PGA Tour, and they're ready to go win right away because it's honestly no different than what they've been doing. It's just against older guys and different people. Yeah, uh, you're, you're totally right. But I do think there's one element here, which is gambling has become a much bigger component of the way casual golfers talk about the sport and elevated sort of, I think, the interest level for a lot of people who are in that same generation of sort of the Matthew Wolf generation through the Justin Thomas, Jason Day, Jordan Spieth, like these guys talk about gambling, like, and they like to gamble. And I'm not saying these guys specifically, but like this generation of players and fans, gambling is core to their experience in golf. Yes, and it is growing up. I think it's less for the guys at the top level of the PGA Tour just because what are you playing for? Uh, you know, if Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas say, hey, let's go have a little match uh, on Tuesday for a practice round before the Open, what are they playing for that's going to get them nervous? Uh, not mu- I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot they can do. Phil Mickelson used to have a Tuesday game out on tour where uh, it was a $2,000 match with a one-time $1,000 press, and Phil's words were always, uh, it's, it's enough to make you nervous, but not enough to make you uncomfortable, and, or, or the other way around, enough to make you uncomfortable, not enough to make you nervous. I guess, I guess that's the way I kind of messed up the first time, but in any case, it, it's not, you know, they're, they're betting, okay, that's, that's a lot of money for you and I, but that's not really a lot of money for these guys, and what I see is, like, the level's just below. Uh, I play with a lot of guys who are quote-unquote professional golfers. Now, you don't know their names. They don't play on the PGA Tour. They're not flying around the world in private jets, but they are professional golfers. They play on mini tours. Uh, They try to get in qualifiers around the world. Those are the guys who, to them, betting on the game is, uh, it's not only fun, it's essential. I mean, this is their livelihood. And if they can go out to a club and say, hey, I'm going to bet 50 bucks on this, uh, they've got dinner for the next couple of nights because uh, they can go out and win the bet. And I think that that is also getting into now not just betting on yourself, not just betting on you against some other players and you playing the game. It's, hey, let's go bet on the Open. Let's go bet on golf every week. Let's extend that to every part of the game as both a competitor and a viewer and a fan. And I, I just think it's become so good for the game, so big for the game uh, to get more people involved that way. I see it every day on uh, so many different levels that um, draws more people in and more people are interested in uh, in what's going on on the PGA Tour. And, and I think a lot of that stems from uh, knowing that you can bet on yourself when you're playing your own game. And so, okay, well, now we can go bet on Dustin Johnson or Brooks Koepka or whoever it might be. Speaking of betting on yourself, don't forget to stick around because we got Darren Ravel talking to Tobias Harris of the Philadelphia 76ers who bet on himself, doubled the offer he was going to get, uh, double the offer he got from $90 million to $180 million over the course of 12 months, uh, what it's like to bet on yourself. I think a great story that we need to think about for when uh, the major season is over and we get out of golf season mm-hmm. is 
the way these guys hustle on the golf course. You know, Drew's, Drew Stoltz, like Sleeves, who you host the Action Network podcast, probably one of the most popular guys in professional golf, played in the web tour, um, web.com tour, you know, now is a regular at Whisper Rock in Arizona, knows all the pros, all the pros play out there. Um, he is probably amazing at betting on like these practice rounds between tournaments, you know, rounds during the offseason, that kind of thing. But the idea of these guys who have to hustle from tour to tour who are not the pro golfers that everyone knows and where 50 bucks means a lot because they're not paying for dinner, uh, that's an interesting story. Hustling, professional golf hustlers. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. I mean, I used to hear stories of guys doing everything from, uh, you know, I'll play with five clubs in my bag, you have your full bag, or I'll take my putter out of the bag and we'll play for even money. I mean, things like that, that back in... Uh, the olden days, 20, 30 years ago, I think was a lot more prevalent than it is now. I, I don't hear quite as much about that now. Guys are obviously still playing for money, but I, I wish that there were better stories out there of just crazy stuff happening on the golf course. You know, guys uh, guys making these outlandish bets and having different handicaps. I don't mean just being like, hey, I'm an eight and you're a two, so I'm getting three aside. I mean like handicaps of I'm going to play with three clubs, or I'm going to uh, hit one ball lefty on every single hole, or I'm going to let you yell in my backswing one time per nine, and, and that's sort of the handicap that we're working with. Uh, those are the fun stories to me. I mean, and I, I'm not sure, Chad, that they're still happening out there all the time. I, I think that, that was something I used to hear about more a long time ago, and now it's more kind of just straight up golf and different golf games. I think a lot of people like playing, you know, whether it's Hey, we're going to play a best ball. We're going to play a scramble. We're going to play a, a wolf game. We're going to play hammer. Like there are so many different games that you can play, and I think people are doing that. But I don't hear about like sort of the good old days where it's, hey, let's really make some handicaps here. You know, I'm a better golfer than you, so I'm going to do this to limit myself. And we're going to play even. We're going to see what happens. I think those are the coolest stories. Screw you, Jason, for rejecting my story idea. I'm still going to. Uh, you're trying to give me more work. <laughs> I am because you're not because you're not doing enough. <laughs> Speaking of which, in your player rankings, which we have to get back to, 156 players, you've got Adam yeah. Scott number one. And like when you're thinking about these rankings, what makes you say Adam Scott is number one? What goes into your formula? So I will peel back the curtain a little bit. And what I do when I start working on these rankings is I put every player into one of five categories. So it's I mean it. I don't even label them, but I just kind of know it's, it's A, B, C, D, and E. I mean, it's just, okay, the A's are the guys who I think have a chance to win that golf tournament. Like I was saying earlier, that's more players than it used to be. I mean, I used to wind up with seven players in the A category. Now I might have 29 players in the A category. So that's changed a lot over the last decade or so. But the A category is guys I think can win. The B category is a couple of sleepers, guys who have been playing pretty well, maybe some bigger-name players I don't necessarily like as much and don't think they can win, guys that will make the cut and be somewhere in the 30 to 40th range and, you know, at least get a paycheck that week. C category, you know, okay, just guys making the cut but not great. D, they're going to miss the cut and they'll embarrass themselves. And the E category is uh, the older champions and, uh, and the guys who really probably shouldn't even be there. They're punching above their weight. So uh, that's how I break them down. Then I start looking in the A category. Okay. Who do I really like? I start looking at what stats fit the course. I start looking at a lot of it's intangible. Uh, I look at Adam Scott and I just say, you know, 
I've always thought he would win an Open. Going back to 2012, where he bogeyed the final four holes to lose by one to Ernie Els. I've still thought that he should win a Claret Jug. This, this year, he's finished in the top 20 at every single major championship. You, you factor in the players as well, and he's got the best score in relation to par other than three others, and three others are, I believe, DJ Kepka and Rory McIlroy. So it's like he's right there. He's putting better. His putting stats are much better. And it all just kind of comes together. And, then, you know, I, I think that Adam Scott's a guy who has a great chance uh, of winning this championship. And, um, and again, it's such a thin line. I've got Scott number one, John Rahm number two, Justin Thomas number three. Trust me, if it happens, Thomas, Rahm, Scott, and those are the three at the top of the leaderboard come Sunday evening. First of all, I'd be very happy with that. Secondly, it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. I mean, it, it is, like I said, just a very thin line between all these guys. So what stats do you think are most important for the British? Ball striking. Uh, I really think that ball striking, first of all, uh, I think putting gets neutralized a little bit at an open championship. Look, uh, guys are going to make some butts. They're not going to make a lot of putts. No one's going to make a lot of butts. No one's going to miss a lot of butts. There's not a whole lot of three butts that happen at an open championship. And so uh, basically it's a lot of two-putting. And you want the guys that are going to hit the ball closer to the hole and give themselves chances for birdies. Adam Scott's as good a ball striker as there is out there. Uh, he's been really strong this year. Uh, even even driving is going to be neutralized a bit this week. I don't think we're going to see the, the bigger hitters uh, hitting drivers much. That takes the advantage away from them a little bit. A guy like Brooks Kepka or Dustin Johnson, who uh, are among the longest hitters out there. You take away that advantage and say, hey, you can't hit driver this week just because you'll hit it too far or you'll hit it offline. Um, and that negates kind of their abilities just a little bit. So um, ball striking number one. And then, again, there's some intangibles that we can't really look at the numbers. We can't look at analytics. I tried to find some, like, apex height of drives and, uh, and and launch angles and things. I mean, we're going like super inside baseball here uh, talking about like little things like this, but I'm trying to find the guys who hit, uh, hit a low ball and, and are better in the wind because at some point the wind is going to blow. And uh, I think those guys can have a little bit of an advantage over guys who hit a real high ball. I looked at the numbers. Bryson DeChambeau has hit the ball higher than anybody else on the PGA Tour this year. That's going to work really well at the 3M Open in Minnesota when the wind isn't blowing, where he finished in second place a couple of weeks ago. That's not going to work at Royal Portrush, and for that reason, I put him pretty far down on the list in comparison to where he ranks amongst the world's best players. So I think that's a big thing for me, too, is just kind of their ball flight, how they hit the ball, as opposed to just how well they hit the ball. All right, so you have Adam Scott, uh, your top-ranked player. I also know from another story not that we want to give away the store, that you have Adam Scott uh, as your best bet to win the tournament, uh, as sort of the best value odds right there. I've bet on Justin Thomas at 30-1. to 1. Um, mm-hmm. Give me... I want to run through some bets here. Uh, explain to me why you like Matt Kuchar to finish in the top five. I feel like he's having a renaissance. He is having the strangest year of his entire career. And that's not all bad. I mean, he's gone through all these controversies. You know, first with the, the caddy payment, and he, you know, basically underpaid his caddy, and it went viral, and people heard about it, and he had to make amends for it, and he wound up paying them. And, you know, people, people think Matt Kuchar is a, an awful person 
because of this story that got out. I've known Matt Kuchar for a long time. He's very far from an awful person. Might not have handled that situation perfectly, but uh, he is not a bad guy whatsoever. Uh, then he had, he had a situation where he he didn't give a putt to Sergio Garcia. The match play was like from two inches away, and Sergio went and kind of raked it and didn't make it. And then Kuchar, again, not his fault, but didn't really play it the right way. He had a, a drop situation at the Memorial where he asked for a drop that no other player would ask for. He asked for a ruling, didn't get it, but still on TV for 15 minutes talking about the situation, and uh, he didn't look good. That said, that's all the bad stuff. All the good stuff is he's probably having the best year of his career. He's got a couple of wins already this season. Uh, he's, I believe, number one on the FedEx Cup points list right now. Uh, so he's playing really, really good golf. He's played really well at the Open the last couple of years. Uh, I remember he was second to Jordan Steve two years ago at Burkdale. He came in ninth last year at Carnoustie, so he understands how to play these types of golf courses. So uh, I like Matt Kuchar a lot. Long, long-winded answer to say I like him. The other, the other bet that's interesting to me, and it relates to a story that you wrote that I want to get to, Brooks Kepka versus Dustin Johnson. You mentioned both of them sort of in the middle of our podcast earlier today. Who do you like in that matchup? I like Brooks Kepka, and it's mostly based on what we've seen from him in major championships. This guy is impervious to momentum, and he doesn't need to sort of trend in the right direction before he gets to a major. In fact, uh, when I was in Minnesota a few weeks ago, I spoke with him. I said, you know, why do you like to play the week before a major championship? I was working on this piece of uh, players either playing the week before or choosing to rest and prep the week before. He actually prepped for this one. He didn't play the week before, but usually he likes to play. And in all four instances where he's won majors in the last few years, he has played the week before. He said, look, you guys don't get it. Like, you guys hear me say, like, I go home and I don't really practice, but you think, like, I'm actually just practicing a little bit. He goes, when I go home, I don't play golf. I'm telling you, like, I don't take my clubs out of the travel bag when I go home. And so I like playing the week before a major because it actually makes me – that's my practice is playing some tournament the week before because if I'm not doing that, I'm not playing any golf whatsoever. And the fact that he's, uh, first of all, so honest about it, Chad. Secondly, that he will go out there and basically just practice by playing a tournament for a week and then get to the major and play better than just about everybody else is remarkable to me, and I know you want to get to the other part of this, but he's got a little secret weapon uh, right next to him all week, uh, this week as well. All right, but before we get to that, uh, before we get to the secret weapon, which is an amazing story, um, it's also amazing to me that, like, do you think he would be that much better if he was practicing? No. I just don't think it's in his makeup whatsoever. And by the same token, I think that other players who would be so frustrated trying to live life like Brooks Kepka. Uh, I made this joke on Twitter. I believe it was the third round at the PGA Championship where Kepka and Jordan Spieth were paired together. And Jordan Spieth, I've always thought, is the type of guy that wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning, walks into the bathroom and, like, checks, like, looks at uh, his swing in the mirror and, like, looks at his grip and tries to figure out, like, what he's doing wrong uh, and just drives himself nuts based on how much he thinks about his game, how much he works on his game. If he tried to do what Kepka does, he would never be able to play golf. It just it wouldn't work for him. He needs to be all in 100% of the time thinking about his game, working on his game. If Kepka, by the same token, tried to do what Jordan Spieth does, 
and thought and worked on his game all the time, he'd just he'd wear out. It's just not in his makeup. He just wants to go out there and hit the ball, and it works really well for him. Uh, I just don't think that if Kepka worked really, really hard on uh, trying to get better and trying, I just don't think it's wor- it's going to work for him. I just don't think it's in his makeup. It's amazing how much of a mental game that makes golf, right? Yeah. Totally. And, and I can see it. Uh, you know, I, I can see it. I, I play a lot of golf. And, you know, I, I play, like I said, I play with some guys who are pros who, who know the game really well. I had one of my buddies who was a pro the other day said, hey, next time you're at the range, you should work on this. And I said, I don't go to the range. Like, I, I literally go to the range so I can, like, see my buddies who are practicing and hang out there and have a beer and talk to them while they're practicing. I, I don't practice. And I, so I can understand Kepka's mentality of, I just want to go play golf. And I'll figure it out when I'm playing. But if I practice, I'll get worse. Like, it just won't work. And I, I'm the same way. So I, I, I totally understand where he's coming from, even if it sounds weird to most of the population. You know, you, I, when I think about Brooks Kepa, I think about you in the same, in the same place. <laughs> it's, it's an easy comparison, really. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, same, same. The one thing you're missing, this might be what's separating you from being Brooks Kepka, is his caddy, Ricky Elliott who you wrote about in the Action Network, an amazing story, literally grew up at Portrush, where the British is being played this week. Like, not in Northern Ireland, but a quarter mile away from the course and says he's played it a thousand times. What kind of advantage is that? It's intangible. And I don't know how to rate this. I mean, for years we talked about Steve Williams in relation to Tiger Woods and how much is Steve worth to Tiger? And I don't mean monetarily. I mean, uh, how many strokes is he worth per round, per tournament? I, I don't know any way of figuring this out. I've always thought that certain caddies are worth more to certain players than other caddies are. And, you know, good example right now, Paul Tessori is on Webb Simpson's bag. Paul Tessori on another bag isn't worth as much as he is to Webb Simpson because he is out there basically like, like, it's like Webb Simpson is a dog on the leash and Paul is pulling him in every direction. It works really well when they work as a team. I'm getting off topic here, but uh, Kent is not the kind of guy who relies on Ricky as much as some other players do. So I don't know that it's necessarily worth X amount of strokes per four rounds uh, of golf this week. But all I know is it doesn't hurt. It just doesn't hurt for him to have – uh, a guy who knows the course really well. So I, I spoke with Ricky a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he told me he's played the course over a thousand times. He and Graham McDowell both grew up together. Uh, they had a little job share in the summers where Ricky would work with the head pro in the mornings and do whatever the pro needed him to do. And Graham would be out there playing and practicing. And then they'd go switch around noon and Ricky would go out and play the course then. And Ricky said, like, like I said, he's, he's played it over a thousand times. He, knows the course. He's actually staying in his childhood bedroom this week, uh, not far from the course. So he's got a twin bed, golf trophies around the room. So his parents never threw anything away, uh, which is pretty funny. So, uh, yeah, if anything, I, maybe it helps deflect any attention that Brooks is getting. And I, I don't think Brooks necessarily feels the pressure very much, especially uh, at an international event instead of here in the States. But if everyone's yelling, hey, go Ricky, go Ricky, and says, go Brooks, uh, I, I think that deflects a little bit, and I could probably help a golfer. Well, it's so interesting. You make Kepka sound like he's a little bit either just machine-like or mm-hmm. like one of these sort of, I don't, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, 
an empty-headed sort of natural athlete, right? Where it's all so easy that he's impervious to a lot of things that would impact golfers, but also he doesn't need the extra help that he thinks is going to give him the mental edge. So what you're saying is if there's anybody who might not need Ricky Elliott at the British Open, it's Brooks Kepka who just happens to have Ricky Elliott. Much like his friend Dustin Johnson, I think Kepka has gotten a reputation in the public as being yeah, sort of like an empty-headed, you know, kind of jock, frat bro type guy who, you know, just goes out there and hits the ball, dude, and, you know, doesn't have to worry a whole lot about it. You know, he just hit it one time, hit it another time, goes in the hole, no big deal, man. And the truth of the matter is I think he works really hard to maintain that image because he doesn't want people to think of him as like this, you know, serious thinker or anything like that. I, I think there's a lot more going on with Brooks Kepta than we understand. And, Chad, did you see where I put him on my list of 1 to 156? Did you get all the way down there? Remind me. It wasn't, it wasn't like that high up that I'm thinking this makes sense to me. I, I'm, I'm going to bail you out here. I put him 156 on the list. Yeah. There you go. You know why? Why? Brooks plays with a chip on his shoulder, and he has admitted that sometimes he manufactures that chip. You know, sometimes his name might be spelled wrong somewhere. He throws his hands up and goes, man, I'm getting disrespected. And he used that, used that as fuel and motivation to go out and play better golf. And so I put him 156 on my list and said, here's the strategy. Let's all bet Brooks Kepka. Now let's hope this gets back to him. He hears that someone placed him dead last in a ranking of the entire field for the Open Championship. And now let's see him go from Bruce Banner to the Hulk, get really mad, go out and win this championship, and then we all win after having motivated him to go play better. How's that for a plan? I like it. I like the way uh, you're assuming your influence is going to go worldwide, and I appreciate that kind of hubris. We need that at the Action Network. (laughs) I'm not sure it has yet. I was really trying to go to... Uh, one of my fellow reporters into asking him about it at the press conference. I, I thought that would be a great Kepka question as he's preparing himself for the tournament. Some guy raises his hand, takes the microphone, and says, uh, Brooks, you know you were uh, ranked 156 on one list of the entire field. And Brooks, you know, would just like slam his fist down on the table, go, You guys don't respect me, and like walk off and go out and win by 12. And like, you know, mission accomplished. We figured everything out that we need to figure out. That's exactly what we're trying to get him to do. But that hasn't happened yet. Hopefully it will. Well, you never know. You just never know, Sobel. All right. Jason Sobel, the Action Network, Action Network podcast. Go, go sign up. Go subscribe. Go rate. Go review. By the way, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast as well. Here's what I can recap for us, Jason. You like Adam Scott. I like uh, Justin Thomas. You like Matt Kuchar mm-hmm. in top five. You like Brooke Kep- Brooks Kepka, even though you have him ranked 156 in your players of 1 to 156. You like him in a matchup against Dustin Johnson. I like you to cover the British Open with flair for the Action Network. I, that's even money right there. Uh, we'll see what happens. You're the best, brother. Coming up next on the <laughs> Thanks, podcast. Buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming up next on the podcast, Darren Ravel, Tobias Harris, betting on himself, and making $180 million. Thanks, Chad, and welcome back to the Favorites Podcast. I'm Darren Ravel. 
Tobias Harris signed a $180 million five-year deal with the 76ers after turning down an $80 million extension with the Clippers a year before. And another way to bet is to bet on yourself. And Tobias Harris certainly did that, and he came out $100 million richer. So joining us now is Tobias Harris with the 76ers for the next five years. And his father, and not just his father, also his agent, Terrell Harris— Let's get right to it. Tobias, when, you know, the Clippers offered you an $80 million extension, what made you say, I'm going to bet on myself and let's see what's down the road and get to the point where I'm an unrestricted free agent? Number one, it was, um, for me, I've been in different situations where I have been traded and I had just got there for probably like 20, 24 games or whatnot. And, um, on top of that, you know, me and my father had uh, had talked about it, and, and he said, listen, you know, I know next summer that I can get you close to a max deal. I've seen the way that you've worked this summer. And for me, my confidence was sky high in the summer, and the opportunity and the role that I was going to have on the team with, uh, with the Clippers was going to be a big one. I also knew my game and knew that I wanted a five-year deal. We was able to make that decision, and you know, it definitely paid off in the right way, but my father definitely gave me some great confidence in knowing that there was greater out there. And I went home, I looked at the free agent list of guys that were going to be free agents the next summer, and I said, I'm going to be one of the best guys on that list, and I just put the work in for it. What's it like to actually make that decision on a human level? Or you turned down the money and then you didn't think about it again. How did it actually work in your head? It was like, you know, when it when it first came out, hey, you declined $80 million, everybody, through the internet and whatnot. I was like, man, are you bugging? Like, what you doing? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was just like, man, listen, like, when we were in Orlando, my father, we had a deal with the Magic for an extension. That was four-year, 32, and 80-year or whatnot. And um, he had said to me, Listen, like same exact conversation. I've seen the work you put in. I know the next summer, uh, you being a, a, a free agent, I can get you anywhere from 13 up. And we ended up doing four years, 64. So just having that confidence to bet on yourself, it takes a lot. And I knew that for me, like when you bet on yourself, you got to be able to really devote yourself to staying healthy and um, playing great basketball. So, you know, th- those all those things went into that decision-making process. But I had signed a, a big deal previous, and, you know, I knew that, let's just say, if I really played down to the level, you know, which I knew I wasn't going to do, but I knew I'd be in a good situation regardless, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Terrell, you've been in this business for a long time. It's not like you're just some dad who decides to represent his son, and that's the first time you're in the business. You've been in this business for a long time, so... How does that make things different that it's not like this is your first rodeo? Uh, it makes it a big difference. First, I just want to say I give all praise to God, you know, protecting Tobias from any injuries. But I've been in this business and I look at Tobias and I didn't really see that many players better than him in the NBA. So when Lawrence presented the eight men, Lawrence knew too that, hey, I understand you turning it down. I know Tobias is worth more than that. And so, it was, to me, it wasn't really a big deal because, well, a couple factors. I see the work Tobias puts in. I see the dedication that he has when it comes to the game of basketball, the preparation he goes about each and every day. So it wasn't really a tough decision, like a lot of people said. How does the father-son dynamic help or hurt? 
I can see on one side, well, obviously, you know, he's my father, so he might believe in me more than, you know, he might say I'm better than I really am, or how close you are, and you do this, well, you obviously know it's not like a typical agent-player relationship where you don't know if the agent's in it for themselves. So the fact that you are father-son, how does that make this decision either harder or easier? Well, it's, it doesn't, I mean, it's the respect that we have for one another Bias has for me and I have for him as the basketball players and what he, you know, he do day in and day out. But realistically, if you look at the statistics of Tobias' efficiencies in the NBA, it's off the chart. And one of the top players that's in the NBA, he has the, and he's the most durable and one of the youngest free agencies out here. So it's like when you look at the statistics, it's all strictly facts. So it, it gets to a point. A father and son relationship goes off. I just treat him as he's one of another top client that, that we all have. But I just think if you look at Tobias' efficiency and the things that he has done and always constantly getting better each and every year, you know, you knew that he was one of the top guys in the league. Right. So data is data. Statistics are statistics. There's a reason why they call him the, uh, the human Swiss Army knife. I get that. Tobias, was there ever a time during the season where you thought maybe it wasn't going to pay off? Um, no, not really. I knew for me at the end of the day, things are going to work in the place that they're supposed to work out. Now, I put my faith and my trust in God, knowing that every situation is presented for me to grow and learn and, and to develop. Whatever is to happen is going to be what's to happen. I think um, when you look at myself and my career, just the, the trades and, and the ups and downs. I've, I've grown from every trade, grown from every scenario, every situation. So I kind of knew that it is what you make it. You know, if, if you want, you could make it as, hey, I, want, I just want this and that in my career. But for me, I really wanted to win. I know, like, what you just touched on the last question. My father and me and, and the balance, you know, sometimes I have to tell him, look, I, I just need you to be dad right now instead <laughs> of agent. And um, we have a good dialogue with that. And we have a good dialogue of knowing, okay, it's time to sit down and talk. When it's time to talk, I call him and I say, I need to speak to Terrell. But when it's time for him to be father, I call him and I say, what's up, Dad? How you doing? So we got that type of dialogue down. That's great. That's awesome. What were your first thoughts when, hey, I did get this deal? Obviously, the, the Sixers had your bird right, so they could offer you one more year. They could offer you more money. So when you got the, the five-year 180, what was your first reaction? I was ecstatic. I was super excited. This is where I wanted to be. So I wanted to get a deal done here. I wanted to be in this city. I wanted to be with these guys on the team. And um, when um, it was presented in the meeting, we were excited. And um, I was happy for myself for where I've gone. And I was really happy for my father, too, because, uh, you know, breaking in, being in the agency game, way back and then now coming back and breaking into it and being able to do both the deals that he has done for me just speaks volume of the hard work that he put in and, and, and just him as an agent and as a father caring and trusting in his son and, and client. So I was really happy for him. Terrell, I did a little research. Did you represent George Gervin in 1990? Yes. So what's your history as an agent? Well, my history goes back 30 years. I represent George Gervin, Cliff Robertson, Greg Foster, Lynette Woodard, uh, Gene Baines, Derek Gervin, Carlton McKinney, Ed Horton. You've been around the block here. Yeah, yeah, I've been a long time. Yeah. Tobias, I think people love stories when guys bet on themselves and it comes out right, whether it's you or 
the famous Joe Flacco story and him bringing the Ravens to the Super Bowl in his contract year. And what would you tell other players who potentially could make the, the same type of bet on themselves? What would, what would you tell them about how to go about it? No, you got to have faith in your, your own self and you got to be smart too. You want to be able to make a decision that can help yourself and help your family and be able to really be in a situation where you can excel as a player. But I, w- I would just say you, you have to be confident. Confidence is number one. Being confident, being smart, you got to be able to back up both of those things with your hard work. And um, that's what I would say. And just put yourself around a good team, a good team that keeps it real with you, lets you know when you're doing wrong, lets you know when you're doing good. And um, just being smart and confident, those are two of the best things I could give advice for. Did you do anything special this year in terms of being more careful because of what was on the line in terms of either not going out in a town or do something different because of the stakes involved? Well, you always got to be sharp in today's day with social media and with cell phones and with everything going on in in America in general. You got to be smart with how you approach things. You got to be smart with your approach to just being a professional. So to be honest, I didn't do anything different. I've been doing this ever since I got in the league. I wanted to be one of the best professionals on and off the floor. So I just stuck to things that when I first came in the league that I learned from vets and I learned from experience. And then I've been just doing those exact same things and just getting smarter along the process every year. All right, two more questions. Terrell, how does commission work with father-son relationship? Uh, He gets uh, 1%. I want to go back with the question that you just asked him. One thing I want to say about Elias, he plays the game the right way. When he was in L.A., the Clippers, Doc gave him the ball, and he was the guy, and he was rolling. He he was the first option on the team, and Doc believed in him. Then in February, it was was a change. He had to come and adjust to this team. One thing about Tobias, he steadily played his game. He didn't go out there and say, well, okay, well, I was a man in the Clippers, and I'm going to see. I'm on my final year of my con. I'm on. I'm on last year of my contract. I got to go out there and get numbers. No, he just. He even sacrificed himself even more. And sometime I'm like, you know, you know, just play the way you play with the Clippers. You know, he says, you know, Dad, I just I play the game the right way, and this is the way you taught me. So I got to play the game the right way. And he didn't play the game where he was worrying about a contract. He just went out there and played the team game. He tried to do the best he could uh, for his team to win. And actually, he played so unselfish when he came here to the Sixers. That's a testimony that he, you know, he has the craft of the game, played the game the right way to win. That's how he's built. And I'm more proud of him than that, how he's a leader. You know, he fought to try to bring these guys together as one and say, hey, listen, in order for us to win, we all got to sacrifice our game. That's what he did, basically. I appreciate yeah. that, but you, you still ducked the commission question. <laughs> Well, that's confidential. That's a little confidential matter, though, you know? I love how he said I give him 1%. <laughs> no, he gives, he gives exactly what he deserves. He knows what he deserves. We, we discuss that. He always tries to slide it in on, on the day I probably get my first pay stub. He tries to slide it in. Hey, need that commission. <laughs> As he should. The whole thing, is, it's a blessing. It's a blessing in a lot of different ways. One main reason why Tobias did walk away, besides the money, he wanted to a home that he fits in, you know, because he'd been traded a, a couple times, and he wanted basically to look at an organization where the culture was right, where everybody wanted to come t- together as one and win the championship. And for him, at this stage in his career, 
he wants to win the championship. He don't want to be on rebuilding teams. He want to be on guys that are all selfish trying to get their numbers. He wants to be on uh, teams like everybody for for each other. Elton presented that here to him, and that's what Tobias wanted, and that's why we have the makeup of this team we have right now. Last question, Tobias. We know that there's high-stakes betting that goes on between players at shoot-arounds and stuff like that. you have a favorite story? Yeah, yeah. Um, during the playoffs, me and Mike Scott, we would, you know, playoff per diem. It's some good per diem right there. So we, me and Mike Scott would bet, and we would go through um, a three-point shooting drill where we'd probably get up about 75 threes, and whoever has the best record, like, throughout all 15 spots, gets to take the other person's per diem. So. For the entire playoffs or the game? For the entire playoffs. Got it. Oh, that's some money. That's some money right there. So I remember taking Mike Scott. So he's going to try to run that back this year for sure. Guys, thanks so much. I I really appreciate it. First time I've talked to you, and I I already love you guys. So congratulations. This is an amazing story, and and you deserve it all. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Our thanks again to Tobias Harris and his father, Terrell. What an awesome story, and we're so glad to bring it to you today. Back to you, Chad. That was Darren Ravel and Tobias Harris. Earlier in the show, we had Jason Sobel previewing the British Open from a betting perspective and so much more. This has been the favorites from the Action Network. Download at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe. Listen to it at uh, radio.com slash the Action Network and all your favorite podcasts platforms. Until next time, love you.